Have y'all ever been on your way to the Clark County building or the outlets on Grand Central Parkway and noticed a metallic building melting into the sunrise? Y'all know the building I'm talking about on Bonneville. It's called the Cleveland Clinic Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, we get to talk to Dr. Dylan Wint, director of the Lou Ruvo Center. He tells us why it was designed this way and what actually goes on inside this perplexing structure. It's Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. I'm Vogue Robinson, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. Good morning, Dr. Wint. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully, you know. The joys of podcasting, we we do it in a closet so you can get that good sound. (laughs) (laughs) You work at the very cool, swirly silver building called the Lou Ruvo Center. How would you describe that building to someone? I would describe it as a pretty innovative building, a pretty striking building, unusual. And all of that was intentional because uh, the founder of the Rubo Center wanted to draw attention to the diseases that we treat here. So it's meant to catch the eye. And um, I have heard that it, it does do that. For sure. So why was it designed this way? And we all say like, it looks like it's melting, or it's a brain, <laughs> but what is it really designed after? Well, there are a few stories about this. I think the most conventional one is that the silver swirly side that's toward the south part of the building, that is supposed to represent maybe the chaos of brain diseases as they come into the life of an individual who's suffering from one of those conditions as well as their family members. And then the north side of the campus, there's a much more conventional, although not completely conventional component that is meant to represent the doctors and scientists, the nurses, medical assistants, patient service specialists who are here trying to establish order in people's lives and fight back against the the chaotic kinds of forces and influences that come from having a brain disease. Oh, I love that's poetry right there. (laughs) (laughs) It's like my whole little heart. So I know that it's named Lou Ruvo. Who is Lou Ruvo? Ah, that's a great question. So Lou Ruvo was a restaurateur here in Las Vegas. He and his wife, Angie, owned the Venetian, um, not the current Venetian, but an Italian restaurant that was frequented by many of the Las Vegas entertainers. As time went on, people started to notice that Lou was having some trouble with memory. Consummate host who was starting to forget some folks' names, Uh, forget people's favorite tables and so forth. And as his family noticed this, they sought help for him. But uh, it took about a year and a half to two and a half years to get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, which was a shock to the family. And um, I like to say that the family experienced four eyes that people often do when diagnosed or suffering with cognitive problems. Ignorance, people not knowing uh, what's going on and not being able to find answers. Impotence, feeling like you you have no ability to do anything to help yourself or the family feeling like they have no ability to help their loved one. Isolation, feeling like there's no one else going through this. 
And indifference, there can be the sense that other people just don't really care. All of these were faced by the Rubo family and Larry, Lou's son, uh, wanted to build a center dedicated to fighting against brain diseases in honor of his father, as well as programs that would help caregivers in honor of his mother, Angie, who um, about two weeks after Lou passed away, had to be rushed to the hospital. Turned out she had damaged several discs and vertebrae in her back from lifting Lou and carrying him around, not knowing what else to do as he was dying of Alzheimer's disease. And she's not been able to walk since then. And she actually passed away uh, just several weeks ago. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And I know caregiving is a, it, it's a journey for sure. I, I caregive for my grandmother, um, I her see, last 60 I days see. of life out here. And she, um, Alzheimer's was on its way. So yeah, it was something different for us, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, mm -hmm. We'll come back to that story. So the building, I, I called it poetry and it's poetry for multiple reasons, right? Because of the way that it looks, but also the, the family story behind it. Frank Gehry, who's like this really amazing architect, designed that building. Why didn't Larry ask just, you know, a regular architect? <laughs> like, that just sounds like, whew, that's pricey. Well, I hope that I get the, this right. Uh, what Larry uh, often says, he um, is president of Southern Wine and Spirits, which is a very large liquor distributor. And he says, you know, he carries 40 or 60 brands of vodka. And there may be four brands that outsell everything else put together. And uh, for him, you know, the differences between vodkas aren't all that striking. And he says it's marketing. Marketing and attention is what gets those brands recognized and sold. And he said if we want to bring attention to these diseases and if we want to bring attention to what we're trying to do here about these diseases in Las Vegas, we need to have the best package that we can come up with. And he said, who's the best architect in the world or who's the most famous architect in the world? And he was given Frank Gehry's name and he insisted on a meeting. And actually, um, my understanding is Mr. Gehry was sort of refusing to meet with him at first and um, uh. demanded a meeting. And uh, apparently at that meeting, they spent several hours together and he got Frank Gehry, who had sworn never to do anything in Las Vegas, to design this building. Oh, he straight up swore off Vegas. I thought it was just yeah. healthcare buildings. But he no, was like, it's I'm not Vegas. <laughs> Again, I, I, I don't. I wasn't there for these stories, but what I've heard is that he said, "Listen, you guys have the Eiffel Tower. You've built a miniature New York. You have all these iconic things around." And I'm an originalist, and Vegas isn't my type of building scene. But Larry was able to convince him with mm -hmm. a very compelling story and the ability to do something that really is going to serve humanity. So what does the silver swirly building look like on the inside? You know, the first impression that I got after it was completed and I walked in there was that it's, it's quite serene. So one of the things that makes it that way is that the roof is actually a self-supporting shell. So there's no structural element on the inside that is holding up the roof which makes it very airy inside. There are some columns that look almost like trees that hold the, um, the HVAC system and the various electronics, such as 
the wires to the lights that can make the lights in the building any color that's imaginable. There are 199 windows. None of those windows are the same. So each window has an individual size and shape. It's also serene, I think, because it has a special acoustic envelope on the inside to reduce reflections and to make it more suitable for things like small concerts and other events, which is what it's there for. So it's really um, quite, quite remarkable. What you see on the outside is reflected on the ceiling on the inside. If you've been in other Frank Gehry buildings, typically when you go to the inside, it's pretty similar to a conventional building on the inside. But this one, the roof that you see out there is the reflection of the ceiling that's inside. Wow. That's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> I heard that it's supposed to be like a grain of sand moving through the world. Have you heard Whoa. that? Is that true? I have not heard that one. One of the stories that I heard was um, that, you know, it's supposed to look like dunes um, out in the Nevada desert. But that was a fairly late story that I heard. So I, I'm, I don't believe yeah. that one. No, that's not as cool. <laughs> What's the significance of having a facility like this in Las Vegas? Well, it's rare overall to have facilities that are dedicated to uh, treating neurological diseases. And there are numerous, there are numerous um, creative aspects to what we do. So that part of the building, that's the silver swirly part, underneath it is really a large event space. And that space is rented out so that we can uh, get funds to serve the purposes of the clinical care and the research and the support and education that we give to caregivers. So that, that's an innovation in itself. Um, a few other things, uh, of course, the dedication of this building just to brain diseases, as well as the housing in this building of not just uh, memory and cognitive disorders like Alzheimer's disease, but disorders of movement, such as Parkinson's disease and tremor, and also multiple sclerosis and other diseases where the immune system attacks the brain and spinal cord. And also because there were not uh, dedicated services, particularly for memory disorders and multiple sclerosis, there was um, a movement disorder program at the university before we arrived here, but it was overwhelmed with the numbers of patients. We know that because we're overwhelmed with the numbers of patients and, uh, you know, we're, we're a bit larger. This city, sometimes it's hard to find doctors that are, that are specialists sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate that the Luruvo even exists so that there are, there's a space because you mentioned those four eyes and that ignorance is so difficult and then feeling mm -hmm. like, yeah, you're isolated. No one else is going through this. Yes, yes. All those eyes are hitting it yeah, <laughs> for yeah, sure. Yeah. Las Vegas actually has, I think its reputation medically um, is, is worse than it deserves. I've um, worked with outstanding doctors here, doctors who are better in their fields than I've seen in other places. But one of the differences uh, in Las Vegas until very recently is like you said, knowing where to find those folks, right? Mm -hmm. So even though that care is given here in lots of places other than our center, it's very hard to know where it is. You, you can't just sort of go to X, Y, or Z. 
But thank goodness with the medical schools that are building up both Toro and uh, UNLV, we will start to develop these centers of gravity or centers of excellence for medical care. I have a friend, Nancy Nelson. She's a poet. And so her ah, first two I books... know Nancy Nelson very well. Yay! Yeah. So her book's Blue River Apple because uh-huh. that was the test that she took for like, That's right. okay, you have to... Actually, you explain it because I bet you, <laughs> you can do it better than me. <laughs> can you explain how that, that test goes? Sure. So one of the most common features of Alzheimer's disease is rapid forgetting, you know, that people refer to as memory loss or short-term memory loss. Uh, so... Because in Alzheimer's disease, the areas of the brain that record new information are frequently the first areas to be damaged, when you give someone kind of unconnected information, such as three unlinked words, it can be harder for them to store that information and then recall it a few minutes later than uh, somebody who doesn't have Alzheimer's disease. And so in that test, We tell someone, um, here are three words I'd like you to remember. I'd like you to say them back to me. So we make sure they have the three words, that they heard them, that they know what they are. Then we'll do a few other things. And then we'll ask them, what were those three words again? And in people with Alzheimer's disease, they're more likely to not be able to remember one or more of those words. And they may not even be able to respond to a cue. So for example, Blue River Apple. If you said one of them was a fruit, you know, they might not even be able to get apple, a grape, orange. And you say it was actually apple. And it's like new news to them because that information never stuck in their brains. That phrase in one ear and out the other, it's almost like that with Alzheimer's disease sometimes. I, I can't imagine, but. I, mm-hmm. I really appreciate Nancy's story and that, you know, she yeah. she had those words and that was kind of her first understanding of her diagnosis. And, and mm-hmm. then she started writing poetry. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we get, she's got at least two harvests from that, that book yeah. series so far. Yeah. She's a wonderful advocate for people with memory loss. And she's also a tremendous example for people with memory loss because maintaining high levels of activity social engagement, physical activity and exercise, and intellectual activity, such as writing poems and books. Uh, She's finishing up a play, actually. I don't know if you were aware of that. Yeah. But all of those things delay the progression of cognitive decline. Can you tell us more about the resources that you have for caregivers? So for caregivers, uh, we have a variety of programs. This was very important to the Ruvos in establishing the center because of what they went through and in particular, what Angie went through. So we have programs to educate caregivers about these conditions. Uh, We also have support services. Uh, We have social workers who can help with finding resources in the community. Uh, We have um, support groups for caregivers uh, led by peers. Uh, We have educational uh, series. So we have a couple of six or eight week programs where caregivers, almost like, you know, being in a university class for uh, six weeks, they'll come each week and spend an hour and a half uh, learning about how they should take care of themselves, learning more about how to be more effective at caregiving, because almost nobody has practice at this before it happens. 
Yeah, that's phenomenal. I never ended up going to any of the the support groups, but I definitely I had we had some good like nurses that came to help us, and so just learning how to how to lift my grandmother up safely, um, how to turn her body on its side, but also taking time for myself. Like, how do I balance? being a caregiver to the woman who raised me, but also like, I got to go to work. I have a spouse. I got to clean this house. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's it's, it's I, overwhelming. I say to caregivers all the time that I have no idea how they do it. I can't keep up with my own life and then it put someone with Alzheimer's disease there. It is heartbreaking and at the same time, incredibly inspiring to interact with caregivers and to to sort of be, I, I think it's a little presumptuous to say that we or I walk this journey with them, but to be an observer and someone rooting for them and maybe giving them a, a glass of water every so often on this marathon that they go through, it's really an honor. Oh, that's, that's a beautiful metaphor. So Dr. Wint, do you have any advice for people whose families are impacted by um, dementia or Alzheimer's disease? You know, there's so many differences between the experiences or among the experiences of people with Alzheimer's disease. There's no brain on earth that's identical to yours. There never has been, there never will be. And so when you then put on that any kind of condition, that experience is going to be different from any other that's out there now or has been before or will be. So recognizing that there are both things that an individual with Alzheimer's disease will share in common with others, but also realizing that you can't really expect it to look the same as it did for your neighbor, or you can't expect that your mother's course will look exactly like her mother's course. These are horrible, horrible diseases. I give the best care that is available anywhere on earth for these diseases. And yet I know that my folks with Alzheimer's disease next year, they will almost certainly be doing worse than they were this year. That's not anyone's fault except the diseases and it's especially not the caregiver's fault. So I think it's really families and caregivers giving themselves the permission to be frustrated about the disease, to be angry even about the disease, but not for that frustration to point at themselves or to point at the person that the disease is holding hostage. Thank you so much, Dr. Went, for being on the show today. We really appreciate you. It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thanks for showing up fresh in the bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I know we're all actively avoiding the news. Um, I'm going to tell you anyways, so that we can be informed citizens together. In the wake of major job losses from early pandemic days, the understaffed unemployment office, again, the understaffed unemployment office reportedly has more than 20,000 outstanding cases. Some claims date back to October. Meanwhile, don't call it a comeback. Free parking in the Arts District is back, kinda. Every weekday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., the city will pause 
parking enforcement to encourage lunch traffic in the area. It's like paid parking is a deterrent to business. Hmm. And last but not least, exactly nothing. That's the quote, y'all. Exactly nothing is what the past three months of talks among the Colorado River Basin states have accomplished when it comes to meaningful collective action to remedy our water crisis. That's according to the general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority uh, in a recent letter to the federal government. That's all for today on CityCast Las Vegas. Thank you for listening. If you want to give us some encouraging feedback, leave us a review. Do you have a friend who wants to know what that building is? Send them this episode. And if you want to see us grow, rate the show and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Talk soon. So he wrote a letter (laughs) and then he told them, we're not doing anything. (laughs) Oh, save your water. Okay. (laughs) Okay.